The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I want to invite you this morning to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 17 through 26 this morning. Though we'll give attention specifically to verses 21 and 25 uh, with our time this morning. But just for the context, we'll read the whole, uh, the whole passage. Luke says to us this, he writes, And he, that's Jesus, came down with them, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice. In that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. As we mentioned last week, we are looking at a section of the text here in Luke's gospel that really mirrors what Matthew recorded in Matthew chapter 5, which is most commonly known as the the Jesus Sermon on the Mount. Some some folks refer to Luke's account of it as the Sermon on the Plain because we have that note at the very beginning that he came down and stood on a level place. And as we mentioned last week, if you were with us, and for those of you who weren't with us, uh, there are those who will contend that this is a different sermon with similar content. I don't, uh, I, don't, I don't take it as that. I don't see the evidence for that. It seems to me this is Luke's account of the same uh, sermon that Jesus preached that's recorded in Matthew chapter 5, known as the Sermon on the Mount. However, Luke has abbreviated it in a little different way than Matthew abbreviated it in his record of it. And the gospel writers have different reasons for doing that. Some of it has to do with the audience to whom they're speaking or writing. And some of it has to do with the overall uh, gist of the letter that they're writing in general and how this fits into the broader uh, picture of what they're trying to communicate. And so Luke here is recording a similar, uh, uh, is recording an abbreviated part of of the, the same message. And we mentioned that this message is really uh, a message that, uh, that begins with what, what's known as the Beatitudes, uh, the, called that just because the, the word that's translated into English, blessed, is a Latin word. 
uh, from which we get the, the, the phrase beatitudes. Um, but they're, they're a, simple, a simple handful of statements that Jesus just sort of puts out there in sort of a, a, a pithy, sort of a clear way that we have to walk through and make some sense of. And, and what, these, what these beatitudes really are is they are they're really little short statements, short sayings that describe the people who make up Christ's kingdom. His preaching is all, all about his kingdom and what it means to be a part of his kingdom, how his kingdom is different from the kingdom of the world, and how the citizens of his kingdom are different from the citizens of the kingdom of the world around. And so these beatitudes sort of fit underneath that, that same sort of aim there, and they define really for us two things, what it takes for someone to enter into the kingdom of God, and they also sort of describe for us the values that belong to the people who are a part of the kingdom of God. And so really we want to look at these things sort of through both lenses. They, they define for us Christianity on the front side, what it takes to get into the kingdom of God, what kind of people, maybe is another way of saying it, enter into the kingdom of God. And then secondly, they describe for us the values of those who are in the midst of the kingdom of God. There are all sorts of folks who identify with the kingdom of God, who identify with the church of God, whose lives don't display these values. And as we walk our way through that, if that really, be, really begins to sort of expose to your eyes, your own self, that you're someone who identifies with the kingdom of God, but these values really aren't, aren't markers in your life, then the, the, the result of that should be an honest searching before the Lord of your own heart and asking the question, do I really understand what it means to be a Christian? Do I really understand what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God? And have I truly entered into that experience in my life? Because the things that it takes to get into the kingdom are the things that continue to mark the lives of believers who are part of it. And there are these values that Luke highlights here in the first part of this message. Now as we jump back into the, these Beatitudes today, there's an important Old Testament passage I want to point out to you. Uh, Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2, they really become the Old Testament backdrop for much of what Jesus is communicating here in this message. Um, as we read this together and then we look back at Luke chapter 6 and we hear what Jesus is saying, it's hard to imagine, it's, it's hard to imagine that Isaiah 61 is not in his mind as he's delivering this message. It's hard to imagine that he's not communicating truths that flow right out of what Isaiah prophesied back in Isaiah 61. Listen to what Isaiah writes in verses 1 and 2. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who, uh, to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress, instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. In Isaiah's day, this was a prophecy of the coming work of the Messiah. It was a prophetic 
utterance from the Lord through Isaiah that described to the people of God the work of what the Messiah would do when he came and established his kingdom. And so if you recall, and and were with us when we were looking at Luke chapter 4 and studying that, we saw Jesus walk into the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth. And he walked in and was handed the Isaiah scroll and asked to read from it. And what passage did he open up the Isaiah scroll to and read from on that occasion? Well, he read from this very text in Isaiah chapter 61. And in verse 21 of chapter 4, here's what Luke records that he said to the people in Nazareth that day after reading this text. He said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was declaring to them that he was the one who was prophesied in Isaiah 61. He was the Messiah who had now come and that his ministry was to establish a kingdom and that kingdom was a kingdom that would be made up of the poor and of the brokenhearted and of people who mourn. And so it's no surprise to us when he begins to, to preach what it, what, it, what it looks like to get into his kingdom and what are the values of those who make up his kingdom. They're going to be the values that were echoed in Isaiah 61. We're going to hear the term mourning and brokenhearted and poor and gladness. Those are exactly the kind of people to whom Christ came to reach out to. Now last week we saw the very first of these these beatitudes. We were told, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the, the kingdom of God. This morning I want us to look at verse 21 and catch the next two beatitudes. Jesus said, just immediately following, blessed are the poor. He said, blessed are you who are hungry for now, for you shall be satisfied. Then down in verse 25 he says, woe to you who are full now, For you shall be hungry. Now, it's a horrible thing on a Sunday morning right before lunch to talk about being hungry. I understand that. Because the more I talk about being hungry this morning, the hungrier you're going to actually get. But hunger is a very powerful drive. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you're just really hungry? Where you hadn't been able to eat for some period of time and and you were just hungry? And for whatever reason... You didn't get the food in time, and what happens when you get really hungry? You get hangry, that's what, that's what the, a new word is, right? People who are hungry turn into people who are hangry, right? You get headaches, you get a stomach ache. I don't know if, if you're like me, but you get, you get grumpy and a little out of sorts when you're hungry and you haven't had food, you just don't feel well. Hunger is a, a powerful force, and if it goes on long enough, the longer hunger goes on, the more intense it becomes, right? And the longer hunger goes on, if you don't get food, it really becomes a life and death sort of a longing, doesn't it? You need food or else you're going to die. And you sense that. You go long enough and you will. Now, there are people in the world who understand hunger, who deal with it as as a reality of life all the time. As Americans, it's hard for us to really relate to intense hunger. We live in a wealthy nation where... You know, if you get hungry, you just walk to the refrigerator and you open it up and there's usually an abundance of things in there that you can grab to snack on and to abate your hunger. 
It's, it's a rare situation when we deal with intense hunger. There are people who are starving around the world, a lot of people who understand the pangs of hunger as a reality of everyday life, but we don't largely experience that here. It's something we have to imagine. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had a, a medical procedure that required uh, fasting for a couple of days. It was a, it was a Friday procedure, so I couldn't eat anything after Wednesday evening. And I thought, well, that's not that big of a deal. I could, I could, I could, um, it'd be a good thing for me to, to shed a couple pounds, so uh, we'll, we'll call this a good exercise and diet. But boy, I underestimated the power of hunger. By Thursday morning, you know, I could have liquids, and, and I had some liquids, and I thought, well, that's okay, this isn't too bad. But by lunchtime on Thursday, everywhere I looked, I saw food. I mean, I couldn't go anywhere without food being like a flashing red light. I, I go to my desk, and I'm like trying to throw myself into my work, you know, so I forget about being hungry, and, and I look at my computer screen, I look right there, there's a bag of trail mix, and I'm like, wow, trail mix sounds really good right now. And I, I gotta get that trail mix out of the way, so I go to my bookshelf to go get a, a book to study, and right there is a little box with uh, P- Ritz peanut butter crackers, and it's like a, a billboard flashing, eat me. My stomach is growling. It's amazing how every room I went in, everywhere I went, there was some food somewhere, and all it did was just make me hungrier and hungrier. And the more Thursday went on, the more I thought, my goodness, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. By Friday morning, I was getting on the verge of hangry. My wife might say I wasn't on the verge. I was already there. But uh, I'll tell you this, after the procedure... Uh, we, we, we uh, jumped in the car and we, we went over to Metro Diner. I happen to like Metro Diner. And I got a, a breakfast. And man, I'll tell you, that breakfast was so satisfying. It was grits and it was eggs and it was toast and it was coffee. All the things that are, you know, bacon, good greasy bacon. And, and, and man, that was the best meal ever. It really wasn't the best meal ever. It just, it was so satisfying because I had been so so hungry for two days. You understand hunger. It's a powerful, powerful drive. And Jesus uses that powerful, powerful drive as an illustration here. He says, blessed are the hungry. Now this, like all of the Beatitudes, this seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Hunger does not seem like a blessing. Hunger does not seem like a blessing. That last Thursday and Friday when I was hungry, that didn't seem at all like a blessing to me. In fact, being full doesn't sound like a curse. But what Jesus says here is blessed are the hungry and woe to you or, 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 or cursed are you who are full. That seems upside down and it seems backwards. If, if physical hunger were in view, it really would make very little sense to us. But what Jesus is talking about in this beatitude is not a physical hunger. He's using a spiritual, a physical analogy to communicate a spiritual reality. There's a spiritual kind of a hunger that he's talking about that marks people who enter his kingdom. There's a spiritual hunger that marks people who are a part of his kingdom. What is that hunger that he's talking about? Well, in Matthew Chapter 5, verse 6, in his, six, in his account of this sermon, he, he elaborates. He says, or he records Jesus as saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. 
What is the hunger that Jesus is talking about here that is blessed? It's, a, uh, it's not a hunger for food. It's a hunger for righteousness. It's a hunger for righteousness. If you remember, at the very beginning of the Bible, you open up your Bible in the early pages of Genesis, you read about God's creation of the world, and we're told that he created the world, he created everything in it, and he created Adam and Eve, and he set them in the midst of a perfect garden, and he set up the world in perfect righteousness. Everything is perfect, and everything is right, and everything is holy, and everything is good, and everything is blessed. The world began in perfect righteousness. God created everything in perfect righteousness. Adam and Eve were perfectly righteous in all of their thoughts, in all of their attitudes, in all of their deeds. They were all in perfect alignment with the will of God. And if you flip to the back of your Bible and you read in the book of Revelation, you find that there's coming a day in the future when Christ is going to return and he's going to gather up his people and he's going to bring them, as he said to the disciples in, John, in, in the Gospel of John, the, to where he is, they're going to be also. In a place called heaven, in the beauty and the glory and the joy of that place where all sin and all darkness and all pain and all grief is eradicated and God's people are going to live with him forever in perfect righteousness when all things are going to be right in alignment with his will in good and blessed. But you and I live in an in-between time because in Genesis chapter 3 we're told something remarkable happened. Theologically we call it the fall. But man who was created in perfect righteousness rebelled against his creator. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They did what was unrighteous, what was sinful, and they rebelled against him. And the effects of that have been massive and far-reaching. Because of, because of that activity, sin and unrighteousness entered into the human experience. And it has tainted all of creation every moment of every day since that moment of that particular day. And since then, we find unrighteousness all over the place, everywhere. Unrighteousness marks humanity. Unrighteousness corrupts our relationship with God. Immediately, Adam and Eve's relationship with God was severed, and that unrighteousness that they engaged in, it tainted their relationship. It broke that relationship, if you will. It separated them from God, and it separated every human being from their creator, from birth because the Bible tells us all of us are, are sinners who've sinned and fall short of God's righteousness. We come into this world unrighteous and unrighteousness contaminates our thoughts. It contaminates our attitudes. It contaminates our behavior. We understand unrighteousness because we experience it holistically in all of ourselves every day of our life in some way, shape, or form. But not only that, ever since the fall, creation has been subject to unrighteousness. It is, in a sense, cursed or tainted all of the creation around us. It has infected the world and all of its systems. And so when we look at the world around us, we see unrighteousness everywhere. We see injustice and we see evil all around us in the world. You don't have to look hard to see it. It's everywhere. blessed ones here, Jesus says, are people who live in the midst of unrighteousness, but who hunger for righteousness, who have an intense internal longing for righteousness. 
who look at the world and see the evil and unrighteousness around them, who look inside their own hearts and see the evil and unrighteousness there and have a hunger that's like a starving human being who hasn't had food in many days. They long with that kind of a longing for an experience where righteousness reigns in them and around them. They hunger for righteousness. There are really three kinds of, or categories of righteousness that they, the people who are part of God's kingdom long for, that they hunger for. There's an external sort of righteousness, the righteousness around us. The people who, who are part of God's kingdom are marked by a hunger to see righteousness reign and rule in the world around us. They long to see the reversal of the fall. They long to see truth and justice reign in the world around them. They long to see suffering and evil and pain and strife come to a conclusion. They hunger and long to see the glory of Christ reign in the world around them. There's an external sort of righteousness, hunger for that kind of a righteousness that marks the people of God. Do you hunger like that? When you look around at what's happening in the world around you, do you hunger to see righteousness reign? Do you get sick and tired of seeing all the pain and all the suffering and all the strife and all the evil and long to see righteousness displayed in the world? Do you long to see all that's, that's gone wrong made right? The people who are blessed are people who hunger for righteousness. But it's not just the righteousness that's out there that they hunger for. It's the righteousness that, that they desire inside that they hunger for as well. And that really shows up in two ways. We've used theological words there, imputed and imparted. But there are two ways that righteousness shows up in the people of God, or a longing for righteousness, or a hunger for righteousness. The first is sort of a, an imputed righteousness, a righteousness that comes to us through Christ. The Bible declares that there's only one way for people to enter into the kingdom of God. And that is, the only people who can enter are people who are perfectly righteous. Perfectly righteous. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, verse 48. He said, you must be what? Perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The only way to enter into the kingdom of God is to be perfectly righteous. Well, if you're honest with yourself, and if I'm honest with myself, and we look in the mirror, we know immediately that that excludes us, doesn't it? Because there's not a one of us in the room that is perfectly righteous. There's not a one of us in this room who looks at themselves and, and looks at the, the, the holiness of Jesus Christ and says, yep, I measure up. No, we're acutely aware of our own sinfulness and our own rebellion. And we're acutely aware of the reality that there's no amount of religious ritual or good works that we can do that can help us achieve perfect righteousness. We cannot simply achieve it on our own. The only way for us to enter the kingdom of God is to be perfectly righteous. And the only way for you and for me to be perfectly righteous is for God to do something in us and to us that we absolutely cannot do for ourselves. He must make us righteous. We cannot just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and be righteous. And he's done that very thing by sending his son Jesus. The very one who preached this message. The one who is God in, incarnate in human flesh who stepped out of heaven and he came to earth and he lived a very, a very 
clear and perfectly righteous life in front of everyone. He died on a Roman cross paying our death penalty for our sin and for our unrighteousness that we deserve to pay. He rose from the grave defeating death and he ascended to heaven to prepare a place for us. And he did that so that you and I can repent of our sin and entrust ourselves to him. And when we do that, when we confess our sin, repent and entrust our lives to him, the Bible says that God does something remarkable. He wipes our slate clean. He wipes away all of our unrighteousness, nails it to the cross of Jesus, and the perfectly lived righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account, if you will. It's credited to our balance. And where we could never be perfectly righteous on our own, God makes us perfectly righteous. Not on account of our own achievement, but by Christ's achievement in our place. So that when God sees us, he doesn't see our unrighteousness. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be saved. It means to come to Jesus and be made perfectly righteous by him. Genuine believers hunger for Christ's righteousness to be imputed to them. They admit their own sinfulness. They admit their own unrighteousness. They, they confess it freely. They don't believe that they can become righteous on their own. They hunger and they thirst for Jesus to do in them what only he can do and what they could never do for themselves. Does that hunger mark your life? And the Bible tells us that that particular hunger for righteousness is immediately satisfied in the moment we place our faith in Christ. The moment we trust in Christ, our account is cleared and his perfect righteousness is imputed to us. And the Bible says, we become the perfect righteousness of Christ. He satisfies that hunger to be made right. But the moment he satisfies that hunger, a new hunger is birthed in the heart of a believer, isn't it? It's a hunger not for the imparted righteousness that comes through Jesus, but for the practical righteousness that becomes the reality through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Because the moment we trust Christ, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit indwells us and he comes to live within us and he begins the work of sanctification which is simply the work of him transforming us from unrighteousness to righteousness in the practical ways that we live our life he begins making us practically into the image of jesus what has already been done for us positionally and legally he begins to do in us practically and this is a process that plays out throughout the christian life the longer we walk with Jesus, the more acutely aware we become of our sin. And genuine believers who walk with Christ, genuine believers hunger and they thirst to be free from sin. They hunger and they thirst to walk in righteousness. They hunger and they thirst to know God more intimately, to walk with him more closely. It shows up in an intense desire for God to know him, to experience him, to please him in their lives. Does that hunger mark your life? Is there a part of your life that looks in the mirror and is well acquainted with your own practical unrighteousness? 
and longs to see that go away? Is there a longing to know God more deeply? Is there a hunger to walk more closely with him? Is there a hunger and a thirst to to represent him better in the world around you through the way you live and through the attitudes you display, through the words that you speak? Do you long for the practical righteousness of Jesus Christ to be displayed in your life? That's a mark of a believer. Described by the psalmist in the Old Testament, Psalm 42, verse 1, the psalmist writes, As the the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. Genuine believers hunger for righteousness. They know when things are not right with God and they long for things to be made right with God. And there's a promise that comes to people who hunger like that, who long for such things. And the promise is simply this. He says, blessed are those who hunger for they will be what? Did you catch that early on? They'll be satisfied. They'll be satisfied. I love that word, satisfied. I like to be satisfied. Do you like to be satisfied? That, that meal at the Metro Diner a couple Fridays ago was satisfying. It satisfied my hunger. I like to be satisfied. This, this word translated satisfied means to eat, to eat one's fill. Completely full and had enough. Those who hunger for righteousness, the Lord satisfies. What a promise that is. To those who genuinely hunger to be righteous, the Lord satisfies that hunger. Lord Jesus satisfies the hunger that we have to be righteous. You and I live in a culture that has the tremendous opportunity for all sorts of consumption and all sorts of consumption that can never actually satisfy the soul. We have a a culture of people that live around us who feel inside them that something is missing because they were made with, they were made to know and be, be made right with their creator, but they suppress that knowledge and they look in every other direction to find some sort of satisfaction for the longings of their soul. They look to money and they look to power and they look to education and they look to achievement. They look to sexual pleasure. They look to everything and anything under the sun and what they find is the moment that they achieve all of those things, those things never actually satisfy. They turn to dust in their mouth and they leave them feeling empty. You can read the book of Ecclesiastes and read about Solomon, the wealthiest man who had lived up to his day. He had all the money that a person could ever want at his disposal. He was the king. He had the opportunity and the means to pursue every single thing the world has to offer that it holds up to be satisfying. And if you read Ecclesiastes, you find that he pursued every one of those things with all of his heart. He threw himself into satisfying his own, his own sensual pleasures. And he had wives among wives among wives. He had the ability to go as far down that road as a human being can go down that road. And the indication is that he went down that road as far as he could. And you know what he says about that pursuit at the end of it? He said it never could satisfy. 
It was like chasing after the wind. I was pursuing something I could never catch. And then he threw himself into achievement and building remarkable things that people would admire and building gardens and building buildings and doing all of these projects that, that, would, that would gain the admiration of the world. And, and he had all the money and he had all the means at his disposal to go as far as you can go down that road. And you know what he found at the end of that road? It never satisfied. No matter what he built, it was chasing after the wind. He amassed for himself wealth like no one up to his day had ever amassed and it didn't matter how much wealth he amassed in his coffers you know what he said it was never satisfied never satisfied it was just like chasing after the wind that is the experience of every human being who enters the world who seeks to find satisfaction in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ They spend their days and burn their years chasing after the wind. Longing for something that they can never catch. Until they look to Christ. Only God can satisfy the soul. Psalm 107 verses 8 and 9. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of men. For he, say this part with me. He satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry, he fills with good things. Where do we find satisfaction? Where does the longing soul find it? He finds it in God, through Christ. The Christian is the one who longs, who longs, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And the one who hungers for that and comes to God to find it is satisfied. He's satisfied. He sees the work of God in his life. She sees God chipping away at her sin and building into her life practical righteousness. And she knows that at the end of life, ultimately, God is going to eradicate it all and is going to usher her into eternal glory with him. And it's there that she's going to find eternal righteousness forever. A soul that is completely satisfied, rejoicing in the Lord for all eternity. Do you hunger for righteousness? Is that the appetite of your soul? The only way to enter the kingdom is to hunger for righteousness. And it is a value that marks believers. What's the second thing he says? Blessed are those, not only those who hunger, but those who weep now. Again, a statement that seems backwards. We don't normally associate blessing with weeping. When somebody's weeping, normally, we will assume something bad's happened to them, right? They've lost something. Something, they're hurting in some way. Normally, those who are weeping don't seem to be the ones who are blessed, at least by the world standards. Normally, the ones who are laughing are the ones who seem to be blessed. But here Jesus turns those values of the world upside down and he says, in reality, in my kingdom, it's the other way around. Those who weep are the ones who are blessed and the ones who laugh are the ones who come up short. In fact, the ones who are weeping now will one day find themselves laughing. And the ones who are laughing now will end up weeping. Well, what is this weeping that he's talking about here? What kind of weeping marks those who are blessed. Well, Matthew, we can look to again in his record of this sermon. He says this, that Jesus' words were blessed are those who mourn. That's another way of saying weeping. 
for they shall be comforted. What is it that the blessed believer is weeping over? The answer to that question is sin. This is the flip side of the other. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, hunger and thirst for righteousness because they're very well acquainted with their own sin over which they grieve. Genuine believers grieve over their sin. And they hunger and thirst for God to eradicate their sin and bring into their lives righteousness. It's the flip side of the previous beatitude. The weeping here is the weeping. It's the mourning over personal sin. It's a mourning and a weeping of repentance. It's a brokenheartedness over unrighteousness that dwells within us. Sometimes Christians get a a bad rap in the world around us, a bad reputation in the broader culture as being sort of people who are haughty and people who are judgmental, people who see themselves sort of better than everybody else. And unfortunately, there are way too many examples of people who display that kind of an attitude. But that's never been the attitude that's marked genuine Christians. Genuine Christians are not marked by a haughty, arrogant pride that sees themselves as exalted and better than other people. Genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have always been marked by a weeping and a brokenheartedness and a mourning over their own personal sin. People who genuinely know Christ don't see themselves as better than anybody else. They see their own sin and they weep and they mourn and they long to see it eradicated from their lives. They recognize their their daily need for for God's grace and they're they're humbled by how far from Christ-likeness they actually are. The true church of Jesus Christ is not a gathering of perfect people. In case you didn't know that. What's gathered here in this place this morning is not a gathering of perfect people. No, it's a gathering of very imperfect people who come together recognizing our own need for God's grace every day, who understand that Christ has imparted, excuse me, has imputed his righteousness to us and has has judicially, has judicially made us righteous, but we come recognizing that that practical reality has not yet played out fully in our lives, and we need God's grace every single day. We come together every week and we worship, understanding how we've lived Monday through Saturday, understanding all the ways that we've fallen short of the glory of God, and we come together as the people of God, not as haughty, arrogant people who see ourselves as exalted over everybody else in the world, but as broken people who understand how far we fall short of the glory of God and who long to see righteousness come to bear in our lives. That's what the church is. Is that who you are? Are you one of the blessed ones who mourns over your sin? There are alternatives to weeping over our sin that we sometimes give into. What is it that people do rather than weep over their sin? Well, some people just deny their sin. They live in sin and they just deny it. They pretend it's not there. They make excuses for it. They, 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 they blame somebody else or they blame the circumstances around them or they l- explain away why sin isn't sin for them. That's not mourning over sin. That's not the blessed ones who weep. That's living in a, a denial. An alternative is to deny our sin and to hide it, to justify it, to excuse it. Some people just glory in their sin. That's an alternative. 
Instead of being broken by their sin, instead of weeping over their sin, instead of mourning over their sin, they just revel in it as though somehow God is obligated to forgive them and they have no obligation whatsoever to honor them or for practical righteousness to play out in their lives. They've got their ticket punched to heaven and it's, hey, I'll just do whatever I want to do and glory in my sin. I'm not going to sweat it. People who have such an attitude are not a part of the kingdom of God. They're deceived. They believe the lie. Because the values of the kingdom of God are those who weep and are broken over their sin. They mourn over their unrighteousness. There are some who are just an alternative to weeping over our sin is being apathetic. Just taking a who cares attitude. Listen this morning, if that's the way you live, you need to examine the foundations of your own faith. If you live with some sort of an arrogant sort of self-righteousness, if you live with, a, with an attitude that lives in constant denial of your sin, a constant, constant excusing of your sin, a constant, of ex, constant explaining away of your sin, a refusal to admit and to confess and to repent of your sin, you need to examine the foundation of your faith. Because the way into the kingdom of God through weeping and mourning over our sin and that is a mark of a true believer blessed are those who weep blessed are those who mourn blessed are those who hate the sin that still dwells within and long to see righteousness come to bear what about those who weep there's a promise for them too blessed are those who weep you will laugh. Those who weep now, those who mourn over their sin one day, one day will laugh. How is that coming to bear? Well, the Old Testament backdrop to that is, is quite robust. We don't have time this morning to walk all the way through it, but this has been the message of God for for, for generations. One example, Isaiah 35:10, the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Jeremiah 31:13, God says, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will give them comfort and I'll give them gladness for their sorrow. There's coming a day when this life comes to an end and when the battle with sin comes to an end and when Christ is going to make all things that are wrong here right and the sin that, that so marks our lives and so dogs us through which we do battle all throughout our Christian life is going to be in a moment eradicated once and for all and we're going to enter into the glory of the Lord forever and all of the joy and all of the pleasure that comes with being in the presence of Christ for eternity and in those moments when sin is gone, our lives are going to be marked no more by weeping and no more by mourning, but by laughter and by joy. Do you long for that? Revelation chapter 7, verse 16 and following, speaking of God's people in eternity, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Revelation 21, 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Passed away. Oh, people who are part of the kingdom of God, they weep over their sin, but they long for the day when God himself will wipe away their tears when he will say to them your sin is eradicated forever enter into my joy forever do you long for that do you hunger for that in your lives is there a brokenness over sin is there a hunger for righteousness if so that's confirmation that you belong to the Lord Jesus that you're a part of his kingdom if not, you need to examine the foundations of your faith and ask the question, why? And you need to do some soul-searching before the Lord. Lord, why is it that I don't hunger for righteousness? Lord, why is it that I'm not broken or weeping over my sin? Why is it that I'm comfortable making excuses? Why is it that I'm comfortable being apathetic and not caring when I sin? Something is dreadfully wrong. Help me. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But you know inside that you're not right. You're aware of your sin and you long to be made right with your creator. There's only one way. And that's to stop trying to be righteous on your own and bow before the Lord Jesus. Confess your sin. Turn from it. Receive the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And allow his perfect righteousness to be credited to your account that you might be saved. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray for ourselves this morning that we would be counted among those who are blessed, those who mourn over our sin, those who hunger for righteousness. Lord, if that's not the reality of our lives, we pray that this morning you would wake us up and snap us out of the foolish fog that we're living in and wake us up to these realities. If we're here this morning claiming to know you as Lord and Savior, and yet there's no mourning for sin, and there's no hunger and thirst for righteousness, Lord, expose to our eyes what's wrong. Draw us to repentance before you. Make us right. And Lord, for the one who knows that they're unrighteous, Lord Jesus, may they see in you the perfectly righteous one who's willing to forgive their sin and credit to their account your perfect righteousness if they'll repent and turn and embrace you as Lord and Savior. Would you make those realities come to bear in this place among your people? For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.